On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk with Councillor Chad Collins about his motion to investigate what cutting 20% of the Hamilton Police Department's budget would look like. It's all part of the thing that's moving right now, the defund the police. Let's see what that means. We're also going to be chatting with a scientist who studies human behavior and patterns and things about a prediction that was made eight years ago about what was going to happen in 2020. Bang on. Bang on. Could not be more accurate. We'll explain. And we're going to talk about the fact that the Confederate flag is no longer allowed at NASCAR. Is that an issue? Is that going to be a problem? I don't think so, but we'll find out. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You have probably, in the last number of days, heard people talking about the concept of defunding police forces. We've seen it in a variety of ways and a variety of places in Minneapolis. They are talking literally about taking apart the entire police department. Uh, Some councillors there have mused about the future of a utopian police-free city. Well, okay, good luck to them. Um, Well, a proposal is going to be coming up in front of the Police Services Board here in Hamilton tomorrow to see if we could do an investigation to find out what a 20% cut in Hamilton police budgets would look like, what that would mean operationally. How would cutting 20% of Hamilton's police budget, which I think works out to about $34 million, how would that affect us here in town? The man who's putting this request forward, this motion forward to look into this is Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins, who joins us now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Oh, did we lose? All right, we're going to get him back. We, uh, you know, these things happen. But yes, it is a it is going to be a proposal not to necessarily cut twenty percent of the budget, but to look into what would happen if we cut twenty percent of the budget. What would that mean? What would it look like? What would we not be able to do, if anything, or would everything carry on as normal? Councillor Chad Collins does join us now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So when you bring this forward, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about the, the thought behind this. Is this because you believe that defunding police might be something worth looking into? Or is it because you want to show that it would be very difficult to do? Or what's the, what's the thought process behind this? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's more of the latter. It, it is, the police budget is an incredibly difficult one, even in the best of times. And, um, and so we've received, I think, in the last uh, week or so, dozens of emails to say we council and, um, and police service board members have received dozens of emails with a list of demands that talks about defunding the police. And as you appropriately described it at the, the opening of the segment here, we're, we're seeing this type of conversation in various forums in all parts of North America and, and in some cases across the entire world. And so it's from the very extreme of, of, abolishing police services altogether, which uh, is an interesting concept to say the least, to defunding police and reducing their budgets by 5, 10, 15, and 20 percent with the thought uh, of reinvesting those budget cuts into social services, whether they be anti-racism programs, uh, housing programs, shelter programs, food insecurity issues in terms of food banks, and so I, I think we need to have these conversations with our eyes wide open and understand the financial implications of going down the path of reducing the labor uh, force that we have with the service. What types of programs would we live without if we were reducing the budget? 
And uh, and I'm and I as I said earlier in my interview with other media, you know, I, I'm open to the conversation of making investments in programs that help the most vulnerable in society, specifically, obviously here in Hamilton. And so, you know, we've talked about affordable housing and what we need to do in Hamilton, and we've made tremendous strides. We have a long way to go with our record wait list. And so if the conversation is about investing in people in our vulnerable sector, including seniors who are waiting for affordable housing units or food banks, I mean, those are the types of discussions that we should have. Um, I'm not certain that that my constituents or, or I am on for taking those resources away from the police and to enhance those other services. So I, I'm asking for an information report from the chief and senior staff. I think the board needs to understand what types of services are at stake as we start to talk about budget reductions and, and the whole theme of defunding the police. I think the community needs to understand what the ramifications are and what dominoes fall, fall as a result of decisions that might be made along those lines. And, you know, I'm, I'm just looking down the QEW at Toronto and they have a councillor that's already put a motion there that says, let's reduce it by 10% and look at making those the reallocation and reinvestment of those funds elsewhere. And I, I'll be, um, you know, I'll, I'll watch with great interest in terms of how they navigate that because it will not be an easy process. But I, I think what's healthy about this whole thing is that we're talking about services. And and what we need to focus on is, in, in my own opinion, is that many of the services that we're talking about are services that were formerly funded in large part by the province and or feds. And slowly, over the last 20 or 30 years, and you can pick any one of them, housing, uh, mental health services, uh, homelessness issue. Um, most of those services were largely funded by the province and the feds, and they've extricated themselves from the funding formula, and and they're no longer a partner in some or all of those. Yeah, and, and so Chad, here, here's here's where this thing to me sort of becomes really difficult is because, uh, forgive me for suggesting this, but I don't believe that if someone who right now is arguing for defunding the police suddenly has a crisis that they are going to say, oh, it's okay, send a social worker instead. The mm -hmm. Anybody who runs into problems is going to want someone to come immediately. That is human nature. That's why we have something like this. Correct. And you know what? I, I we, It becomes a very difficult thing because we got to take a break here in a sec. I want to come back with you. But it becomes a very difficult thing because suddenly the people who say we don't want police, if police don't come, are going to be arguing you didn't send police. Correct. And you know how how do you how do you play both sides of that seesaw and say, you know what? Yeah, we don't want it until we want it. It's like insurance. I don't want to pay for insurance, mm -hmm. but I'm darn sure wanting it if my house burns down. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chad, here the thing the thing I am hearing most often when people are arguing for the defunding, there are some who are lobbying for the complete abolition of police. Uh, those yeah. people, I'm sorry, they th they're on a different planet. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, but the idea that, okay, let's, let's take some of the money, as you mentioned a few moments ago, yeah. and let's move it into social services, or we'll have social workers go out to people who are having mental health crises or uh, people There's, who are having yeah. a bad trip or something. They're two separate fields altogether. And I think once you start blending the two, you run into trouble in terms of, and you highlighted it earlier, you know, when you, you call for service, you want to, you want to know that they're going to be there quickly. And they're going to be able to assist. And I, I think as we, I think what we'll see when the chief comes back with the report is that a 20% reduction, even a 5% reduction, I would even say a freeze on the police budget would take us to a point where we have less officers in the community, we have less cars on the street, 
and we have less service to provide the, our residents and our business community. And what I'm hearing from constituents is the, is the reverse. I, I'm not. My constituents are asking for more visibility. They're asking for more enforcement in terms of what we're seeing on our streets with with some of the traffic chaos. They're asking for they're asking for more visibility in our parks and and seniors are looking for more protection. And so I, you know, it it the the call for the defund the police I think runs counter to what the vast majority of of people are mm. are asking us as it relates to service delivery. And I think that those people who are asking for that and are part of the defund the uh, police movement need to know that there are severe consequences if you were to reduce the budget, whether it's 20% or 5%. And and I think that's an important part of, they need to have that information. And I think the broader community does because we'll be through our budget process in the fall. And there's no doubt in my mind that when we go out for public consultation, we're going to have a lineup of people um, in front of whether it's the police service board or city council with the same theme of defund the police. And we will have the information at that point in time to say these are the implications and these are the dominoes will fall should we go down that road. Well, I'm not. Can I jump in for that. a sec? Because I got to ask you about yeah. that. Because there's two sure. things with this. Again, leaving the people who are absolutely for the abolition of police out of this, the ones yeah. who say we want social service workers doing this, it's a nice concept. But there's two issues yeah. with this one. The first is that. Oftentimes, if you're going to send those people out to deal with somebody again who's having a mental health crisis, whatever, these are people who they're unpredictable and these situations can escalate. And first of all, I'm not sure that the agencies, Children's Aid or whomever is going to say, yeah, we're fine sending a social worker into a such and such a situation at two o'clock in the morning. Correct. Uh because they're now at risk. These things can escalate. And the second part of this is we already have in this city. the coast program and other things like this. But if you're now going to say, we're going to send a social worker, which is, that's fine because they are better, better suited for this kind of thing than the police, but you're not going to send them alone more often than not. So you still have to have a cop with them. Yep. And our police, to be clear, Scott, they're, they are specifically trained for these types of crises. I mean, it's the training they receive today is far different than what they would have received five or 10 years ago. And, And that training is constantly evolving to deal with, the issues that police face in society. So I think it's a healthy conversation to have in terms of, I think what it all points to is that policing is important in Hamilton. The vast majority of people in our community, I would guess, and I deal with dozens, if not hundreds of people in a week, uh, feel that policing is important. People are looking for more, not less. But for those people who are proposing it, like the Josh Matlows in Toronto down the QEW, who's looking at a 10% reduction there, um, there are implications, and I think the community needs to know for those people who are proposing a cut that there will be implications and ramifications as it relates to service delivery, and it won't be a positive one. One more thing I want to ask you, we only have time, on, so I wish we could do this for a lot longer. What mm-hmm. is your, as a city, as a city council, what is your obligation for safety? Because if you were to cut, let's say 5%, let's say 10%, yep. and someone makes a call to 911 and a police officer can't get there insufficient time because there's fewer officers on the street and now unfortunately horribly tragically someone dies or is horribly injured are you then as a city open to a lawsuit because you cut police back and made it less safe absolutely and that would apply to all emergency services so if the same proposal was for our ambulatory um uh, staff if it was for fire once you start to make cuts in those services 
it, it becomes, you know, you're, you're putting people's lives and safety at risk, and then it becomes a risk management issue. And it becomes one of those issues where, as you just pointed out, it just takes one incident. And for someone to say that, you know, had the service levels been different, uh, someone's life could have been saved. Uh, and these things come to the fore in the court, and then you're, you're through that whole process there. And so it's, you know, there's so many issues at play here. And I think the simple you know, the simple request just to defund the police and, um, you know, and, and to throw out whatever budget figure someone wants to, whether it's five or 10 or 20 percent, um, you know, I, I think those people need to know what the implications are when, when they suggest that and when they request that. And and we're, we'll see that debate happen in Toronto. I'll be fascinated to see how they struggle with a 10 percent budget reduction there. Councillor Chad Collins, appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, you know, as I say, like, I, I, I'm not, again, the people who are arguing for the full removal of a police department, I'm sorry, you have no idea. You have no idea. Like, come back to earth. But for the other ones, I know it's all a good idea until it's you or your loved one that needs a police officer, and then you're going to expect them to be there. And I'm pretty sure you're not going to say, oh, it was okay. I was okay with them cutting 20%. So my loved one was whatever. I'm pretty sure that's not going to be the discussion. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This to me may be one of the most fascinating things I've seen in weeks and weeks. It was a story. It was an interview that was done back in 2012. Keep that year in mind. Eight years ago, 2012. And it was done with a scientist uh, who studies population and human behavior and, you know, things along the line of how we interact with our world and all the rest. We can get more details about that in a minute. Anyway, here is what he said back then. It's a bit of a quote, but I want to read it to you. Historical studies show that society goes through long-term cycles of violence. There's a buildup for roughly a century, then a period of violence or upheaval for 10 or 15 years, then people get tired of it, and the next generation goes back to being peaceful. It's then the grandchildren of that generation who never experienced the severity of upheaval firsthand who are likely to start causing problems again. My theory, now keep in mind, this was in 2012. My theory suggests it will be 2020 when the U.S. hits a new peak of violence. Hmm. Well, this theory, this science is based on something called Clio or cliodynamics. I think it's cliodynamics. Dr. Dan Hoyer is a close colleague of that scientist. He's based out of Toronto. He joins me now. Dr. Hoyer, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, You've heard that quote. I'm sure you've seen that story before. You probably were involved in that. Would you have made that same prediction eight years ago? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is based on research that Peter and myself, other colleagues, Jack Goldstone, Andre Kortayev, um, have been doing for several years now. Um, and actually, the research that that quote is based on is from even five years before then. Um, okay. We really have been tracking these trends for a while. So people are that predictable? Um, not so much people. It's the sort of underlying structural factors that are predictable. States are predictable. Societies are predictable at that level. All right. Let, let's jump into this for a sec, because if we can mm. predict that society will do this, and, and I mean, obviously, you're a PhD uh, and we have limited time, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but, but how, how can we predict this? Why does this happen in a way that we can say we think that 2020 was going to be the time? And by the way, nailed it. How, how can mm-hmm. we know this? Well, I mean, it was a little fortunate that the timing worked out just right. Um, but basically, in order for these sort of events to occur, these violent um, outbreaks of uh, rebellion, of violence, of political unrest, 
they're cyclical. They happen all the time, every 100, 150 years or so. And it really takes two factors. And so one is the deep structural um, pressures and the deep structural drivers. And those are very predictable and very regular. The other thing is the individual human behavior, right? What we would call the triggers. And you kind of need both of them. And it's really impossible to predict the triggers, but the trigger only matters um, based on the underlying context. So as the kind of pressure builds up, think about a forest fire or an earthquake, right? As the pressures are building up, it makes it more likely that a trigger is going to hit and that a trigger is going to unleash some kind of catastrophic event. And so the murder of an innocent black person in the U.S. or in Canada, this is a trigger, right? But this is nothing new. This happens fairly frequently um, in the last several decades. It's because these structural pressures have been building up for so long that they're at such a state that this is now triggering this sort of paroxysm of unrest and violence. And if I go back to his quote from that interview, mm-hmm. it does say that it, this will settle down for a while, and it's the grandchildren of that generation that last settled things down that will do this. So it seems to me, if I'm reading this right, that there has to be a uh, a, a lack of firsthand awareness of how traumatic something like this could be. You don't understand what this is like. I mean, the people who fought and whose families and loved ones fought in the Second World War were in no rush to get back into any kind of violent situation. There has to be a distance, as I understand it, so it doesn't, so, so you can create this kind of thing. Well, that's part of it. And the one thing that's missing from that quote, the kind of key thing, is that holds um, if nothing else changes, right? So if the deep structural issues that are underlying the violent event, if nothing changes, it'll still burn itself out. And then a couple generations later, people will, as you say, forget the trauma and they'll be sort okay, of... Okay, wait, stop. Hold on. Let me yeah. say that Say right. that again, just so I understand that. If nothing right. changes, it'll burn itself out. Changes. So if they didn't have a violent reaction, it would just fizzle out? No, no, no. That um, It would just fizzle out and it would recur again after a couple of generations. But that okay. assumes that the underlying structures, that the underlying pressures haven't been abated. And so you can actually delay the time that it takes for a sort of another violent event to happen if you improve the underlying factors, things like lowering equality, increasing well-being, and other um, elements. It does suggest that the people who are looking at what's happening right now and saying uh, whether it's the end of the world as we know it or something Mm -hmm. that is uh, the world is tearing itself apart at the seams in a way that can't be repaired, um, that's not really true because this is just part of the normal cycle then. Well, it's not so much part of the normal cycle, but one thing that I sort of get comfort in as an historian is sort of the awareness that we have been through these kinds of things before, and it's not the end of the world. It's not necessarily catastrophic. The downside is that often it does take an extreme level of violence, loss of life, and sort of terrible things to happen before the situation will normalize. But that doesn't have to be the case. As I say, it really depends on what happens with the underlying structures, the underlying pressures. What would be, what would have been, and I'm just trying to think back because 50 mm-hmm. years ago, because that's roughly the, the phrase here or the, the, the frame, what would be the last one that you would categorize in this that, that would have been the last thing like this? Uh, well, mostly that was based on, again, U.S. data, um, and that is the sort of late 60s, early 70s civil rights, civil rights movement. Yeah, okay. And the violence right. and the passion was there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking with Dr. Dan Hoyer, who's a Toronto-based scientist, who's a project manager at the Global History Data Bank Project. And uh, he and his colleague had made back a number of years ago a remarkable prediction that violence and an uprising and this kind of thing that we're seeing right now in the States would happen in 
2020, which, uh, boy, when you see that, you go, okay, they're either psychic or they're really good at their science. And I'm guessing he's not psychic. Uh, you're not psychic, are you? I'm not quite psychic. <laughs> okay, well, then you're really good at your science. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the other things is we're talking about all the things that go into this. Uh, Dr. Turchin, who we were mentioning before, um, in that interview, he suggested that this is, and you've touched on this as well, this, the, it's the underpinning of things, but he says it's politics uh, that, that ultimately the elite are trying to grab power by upending the status quo. Is that, is that right? Is that a good interpretation of what this is? That is a good interpretation, and that is one of the things that unfortunately is a constant that we find sort of throughout history. Um, and that's one of these things is that sort of those with power, those with wealth and power, try to hold on to that power, to grow that power, and to sort of keep it for themselves. Often what you see then is um, in increasingly fierce competition among the elites, among those with wealth and power. And that really drives a lot of the polarization, a lot of the virulent, uh, virulent language. And that then trickles down throughout the rest of the society. And that leads to revolutions, to demonstrations, to violence in the street. And that's exactly the process we've been seeing in the but last... But that also uh, suggests... That also suggests that it's not necessarily the folks in the street who are really driving this or who are really the authors of this, but the elites on their side of the political aisle who are lighting the fuse and helping this happen. Would that be true? No, that's not quite right. It's, it's, it's not so much that the elites are driving it, but that the elites are necessary for it, right? You actually need both um, groups to participate. And what we found historically is that revolutions don't happen if it's just sort of the masses, if it's just really what we consider popular uprisings. The only sort of large-scale successful revolution, the only large-scale uh, moments of violence involve some members of the elite. And so you really need both parties to be uh, participating in it. And often, as we say, this is driven by these underlying structural um, uh, features that both groups are doing worse and worse, and they're getting sort of more and more upset about it. And the fact that you were able to make this prediction and that it was it's based on some kind of a cycle that we can say is probably going to come around. I mean, if you break it down, do we not all want power? Is that not the human condition that we all want to be at the top of the hill? And so ultimately, when you're not the one there and you see someone else, that's going to lead to these things? Not quite necessarily. I mean, we all want sort of comfort. We all want high well-being and power is often seen as being part of that. But there are plenty of examples um, and plenty of instances where a sort of more collaborative, more collective action approach that distributes the resources and keeps well-being sort of high for a larger number of people exists. And actually, the, you know, the other part of the prediction is not just that um, violence cycles, but also high well-being, high integrative, high collective action also cycles on the opposite end. Right. So that's All right. Now part of that story. Now, let me get to the one that I, some people are really going to blanch at this one, and, and uh, you may as well. I don't know. Um, back in 2012, we had no concept that Donald Trump was going to be president of the United States. And in fact, in 2012, if you had said he was going to be president, some people would have laughed. Mm -hmm. And so when that prediction was made, and you say even five years before then, that by 2020, we would see this kind of situation happening, does that mean that despite the fact that a lot of people are blaming Donald Trump, you've talked about triggers, I get that, but that a lot of people are blaming him, that this would have happened no matter who was in the White House or who was the leaders of the land? Unfortunately, yes. And it's, it's that, um, in fact, Peter did predict somebody like Donald Trump, a sort of populist, um, nationalist uh, leader, to emerge. And as you say, people laughed at him in 2012, but of course uh, these predictions have come true. Um, and really it's that 
you know, Donald Trump in many ways and the other um, sort of nationalist leaders that we're seeing around the world rise up are the result of this. They're not necessarily the cause of what's going on. So if not Donald Trump, it would have been somebody else like him promoting this similar sort of virulent polarizing language. So do you believe, though, because the last election was pretty, in the States, was pretty hostile, do you believe that if Hillary Clinton had won, that the same thing or something similar would be happening or could be happening? Uh, Actually, yes, that is part of our prediction is that um, the polarization works in both ways and it often swings. So even if Hillary had won, you would have still seen a lot of um, violence, a lot of protests, a lot of uh, unrest in the States. Maybe it would have been delayed by a few years. Um, but it would actually have been. But there would have been a trigger at some point. Exactly. All right. We only have a minute or so left here. So we, we all know that's that thing. We've all been told a million times in our life, those who forget or ignore history are bound to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And you've pointed out that we have forgotten history enough times that we've done this in a cycle. Mm -hmm. What changes that pattern or is that pattern completely unchangeable? And we will continue to do this. Uh, Luckily, there are ways to change the pattern or at least delay the onset of the crisis. And again, this is raising the well-being of everyone overall, making more sort of inclusive politics to uh, deflate or defuse some of the um, elite infighting. Um, Redistributive policies, tax reforms, things of that nature tend to, and in the past have proven to, um, diffuse a lot of this instability and unrest. It is absolutely fascinating. Uh, people can go back and look for this stuff. Um, it, it's online. It, as I say, when I saw it, I read it twice because I thought, wow, as I say, you're either a psychic or you're really, really good at figuring this stuff out. And uh, listen, I, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk about it today because it's so interesting. Dr. Dan Hoyer, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH joins us fresh off the air still has that that glow of TV about him right now, having just finished his sportscast. Sir, how are you today? Um, yeah. It's, I, could, are, are you, I just kind of got in halfway through, um, you know, your opening there. Are people complaining about... No, well, I haven't heard... Compl- well, that's not true. I have heard a few people say, it's too hot. It, it's very hot out there. there it, there's no question it's, it's very hot out there. But what, what, what month is it? Yeah, it's supposed to be hot. Maybe. And again, we complain no matter what it is, Bobby, you know that that's the Canadian way. If it's cold, we complain it's too cold. As soon as it gets hot, we complain it's too hot. We like it to be a very temperate 71 at all times. No, no. no. <laughs> I don't. I want, I love this. I was no. sitting outside for half an hour before the show just to... You know, just to chill out a bit. And I, I'm loving this, except for the fact that my bald head gets scorched like a hockey goal light within about five minutes, but that's no, okay. I'm kind of the same way, but uh, I, I might have an added layer of protection. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, you know, but it's, it's just beautiful. Like, I, I love this. And most people should go to, you know, maybe I'll, I'll buy them a ticket to none of it and they can go hang out for a couple months. Stop complaining. I see. Yeah, that's, that's it. I, but we do, we do, we complain no matter what it is, we complain because that's our thing. We, we like to, we like to complain about the weather. I'm, I, let me ask you this question, then we'll move on. I am of the opinion that I will take, I will take temperatures so hot that my head bursts into flames before I take temperatures so cold that my head freezes. Which which end of the spectrum are you? Are you going to be okay with too hot or are you okay with too cold? 
No, I no because it's kind of too too coldly is dep- is depression. Like it's it, it's not good. People are I not agree. outside. People are not walking around. People are not are not wearing comfortable clothing. In fact, people you know this time of year people are wearing you know much lighter clothing. Uh, you're more inclined to walk down the street and look someone in the eye and say, "Hey, how are you doing today?" That just doesn't happen. As opposed to just... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You'll notice that they've never done a season of Survivor in Antarctica. Oh, exactly. Because who wants to watch that? Who wants to watch that? People huddled by a fire in the fetal position, just shivering in their teeth chattering. No, it's it's not conducive to... It's a slow suicide. I'm sorry. I just now, please I, vote me off the island. I got to get out of here. I got to get heated up. It would be it would be more just like a, a, a who can survive literally survive the longest without giving in. Anyway, there we go. A couple things I want to ask you about today. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, just very quickly, there was news today that NASCAR has said now that nobody that the, the Confederate flag has been banned from from everywhere around NASCAR. Now, for the record that I know of, there have been no drivers, no teams have had this as part of their car for years and years and years. This is for the people who show up maybe in their Winnebago or whatever and hang it. Mm this was not a difficult decision, was it? Like, nobody thought this was a difficult decision, did they? No, I, I, look, I'll be honest with you. When that, well, I did the little story on that last night, and I, I might have, you know, behind my back kind of said, good luck. I mean, Bubba Wallace, the lone black driver on the, on the, on the Cup Series circuit, was the one that said, you know, it's time for this to, you know, this flag to disappear. And I kind of, my, my opinion was, good luck, dude. You're talking about a sport that is a generally is generally raced with the exception of Michigan and a couple of other places, Chicago, I believe. Atlanta, I can't say can't say Atlanta because Atlanta is part of the South. Most of the races are run in the South, and to and this is the way I versed this. And maybe you might agree, you might not agree. I versed it as the Confederate flag is a source of Southern pride for some and a source of racial inequality and slavery for others. And I, I would he, agree. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I'm shocked that, that they actually did this. And I'm sure, obviously, this is the perfect time for them to do it. And, but I'm going to say this, honestly, how they're going to monitor this with the people within the crowd, because, as you said, it's not the drivers, it's not the teams where you see this flag. It's within the, wind, the infield. It's within the, 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 the seats and the stands, you know, some of them in excess of 100,000. And many people, as you said, bring their Winnebago's and camp out for the weekend, and they proudly you know, put that flag up. So to, I don't know if you're going to have the flag police running around Talladega, because uh, that's coming up, and that's one of their bigger race tracks, the Super Speedway. Um, and again, people hang out there for a week, sometimes a little bit before the race and after the race. Uh, th- how are you going to police this? I need to read more uh, on this. I mean, congratulations. Well, I think the right thing has been done. But wow, uh, I don't know how they're I think it's not, it's not hard to police. I mean, look, it's no harder to police than when you go around in baseball stadiums and people have signs that people are offended by and they take those away and oh, they oh, say, oh, okay, oh, you have that, a choice. You can either leave or you can take it down. I hear you. That's that. But generally that's like, you know, one or two out of a 30, 40,000. This Confederate flag flies proudly in, I mean, not just, it's not just two or three or four people. You're talking about masses of people. They wear shirts and wrap the Confederate flag around their body as the as you as in their version of the American flag. 
Yeah, I, and again, I to me, it was just, a, it's a situation of no one is telling those people that they can't have their Confederate flag. You just can't have it at NASCAR. And there's lots of things that you can't have at NASCAR. You're not allowed to bring in a an AK-47 into NASCAR. You can't bring, um, you know, this or that or the other. Like, th- there are rules with anything, and you can still have your flag. You just can't have it here. And I don't see that. I I, just, I don't see that it's going to be a big problem because I think that that it's it's just a rule that they're going to. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. You know. The one part about the Confederate flag, and, and uh, like I, I'm not from the South, I have no affinity for the Confederate flag. You want to know what I, and you may, uh, you may know immediately what I'm going to say. I didn't, I mean, most of my life, I didn't even know what the Confederate flag meant. My exposure, and when I see the Confederate flag, any guess what I think of? The Dukes of Hazard. Exactly. I think of the General Lee. I think of the Dukes of Hazard. And so it's a, it's a weird thing because to me, I understand now what it stands for, but in my mind, it's a goofy kids show that, you know what it's, and I know that's not what it is. And so I have no affinity to it. I don't need to to have it, but it's, it's, it's strange how, you know, this thing means so many different things to different people. When I see it, I think of Bo and Luke Duke. But, but, you know, it's funny because I, I used to love that car. I still do. I think that 69 Charger is just one of the all-time best uh, stock cars, you know, for stock cars at times and just a muscle car, period. Uh, I would love to drive that thing. But maybe not so much with that flag. <laughs> but, you know, you think about that show. How many black people were ever on that show? Well, uh, very few. None. None. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't think of any off the top because of my head. The South, and, they, and reasons why? Because it's the South. Right, that's the South. That does the deep South backwoods kind of stuff, and that's what that's what NASCAR is built on. You know, um, we talk about tracks in North Carolina and South Carolina, Darlington, Charlotte, Charlotte, Darlington especially. That is an original racetrack, right in the roots of of, of Southern USA, with you know their ways of thinking. So again, I see what you're saying, and maybe it will be easy to do, but I, but I think there's going to be a portion of the public that attend these races on a regular basis that are going to be not happy about this one bit. Maybe, maybe. We will see. I mean, it, again, I just, I just don't think it should be that big of an issue, but again, I don't live in the South, uh, you know, I, so, uh, you know, take, give me something that is very familiar up here that people are very attached to, and we don't seem to have those same attachments up here um to things like I, i'm trying to think of what would be a similar thing for someone in ontario and i'm not even talking about something that has racial connotations i'm just thinking like what is something that we hold really dear in this province it may not even be an offensive thing like i can't think of anything that we even would have that everybody would be on board with like that that i don't know that I guess we would that, say i guess the only thing i can think of scott would be the opposition that you know that you know i think the government did have for some when um, I think we decided to go kind of by language on our signs. I think there was some, some, some kickback there from some people saying, you know, why do we need to have French on our signs? Um, it wasn't a, a, a large crowd, but I do remember when that change happened, there was people saying, well, what are we doing this? Why, you know, and, you know, why are we kowtowing to, to Quebec, right? That was sort of, I, I thought, I remember some of that kind of, you know, that angle, that, that sort yeah, of... Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe that's a good one. If all, if all of a sudden we were to decide that, um, you know, we had to have, I don't know, another language on every sign, maybe this would be a similar thing. I don't know what language you're going to choose, but I mean, let's say we decided, okay, now we have to have, we have now six 
biggest languages in Ontario, so they all must be on every sign. Uh, yeah, okay, fair enough. I think then you would have some people saying, wait a second, come on. So maybe, maybe that's an example. I don't know. Yeah. Let me jump into something else. The totally easier, totally less fraught with everything that's going on in the world. Not that those <laughs> things aren't important discussions to have, but 19 years ago yesterday, 19 years ago yesterday, Raymond Bork lifted the Stanley Cup with the Colorado Avalanche. And a lot of people still point to this as one of the great days that I love seeing Ray Bork lift the Stanley Cup. Bubba, to me, that was one of the saddest, most unsatisfying things ever because Ray Bork is and was and should have been a Boston Bruin. And what Ray Bork did then, and he was traded. I mean, it wasn't entirely him, although he certainly had a lot of say in it. To me, it's the same as Kevin Durant. It's the same as... I, I, it, it makes my skin crawl when athletes chase a championship rather than win one with their team or don't win one and go out into the retirement with their head held high saying I did everything I possibly could. I hated, not hated Ray Bork winning as a man. I don't have anything against Ray Bork. I hated seeing him in a Colorado uniform winning that cup. As every Boston Bruins fan felt that way too, but the organization. And I'm not a Bruins fan, by the way. Just to be clear, I, 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 I'm not sour. Yeah, you're that. Not a, you know, but I'm just saying, as every Boston Bruins fan um, probably didn't like it either, but also in their hearts of hearts, probably felt happy for him because he's a guy that I think earned the right to be playing for a winner. Where that team at that point was going nowhere; they were in the middle, or at least to start a rebuild. He was obviously at the tail end of his career. Generally, uh, I, I think he played for that team for two decades. And, and virtually, I think he got to the Cup once or twice, and I think they got beaten by Edmonton off the top of – I'm just going off the top of my head here. Um, and the team was in no position to win. So he, I think he earned the right to say, look, I want to finish my career with a winner, as he did, um, and feel that feeling of winning a cup and a championship and i think if you sat down raymond bork right now and said would you have rather this happen with colorado or boston i think the answer is obvious of course I, I think he earned that right though uh, scott and i know what you're saying um but we also kind of look down you know it's funny you can't win either way think about um there was a thought in the Maple Leafs captain and Matt Sundin, his last dying days, that they would trade him to a, a winner to go maybe chase a cup, and he in turned Vancouver. them down. Oh, right? oh, yeah, that, but yeah. Remember, he turned them down and said, no, I, 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 so he did exactly what you're saying, right? And he was heavily criticized for that because then it did not allow the Maple Leafs to acquire the, the, you know, the, the, the leverage and, of course, the draft picks that they could have got from some team for a, a player, even at that stage of his career. Um, and I think he played a, a season and a half with, uh, with, with the Vancouver Canucks. So I don't know if he can win. <laughs> no, and, and I look at a guy like, I don't have an objection to a guy like Mark Messier who went to the Rangers because when Mark Messier went to the Rangers, they were not a Stanley Cup team. And he was there for, how many years was Messier in New York? Seven, six? I mean, he yeah, was there a long that, time and built that. Time. He didn't just show up for the coronation. And again, I mentioned Kevin Durant. I mean, maybe Kevin Durant is the most egregious example in basketball. A guy whose team, he was on a great team in Oklahoma City that almost beat Golden State 
And then when they didn't, he goes, ah, forget it. I'm just going to go join Golden State. And I'm sorry, he can say well, that he didn't do that. But that's exactly what he did. So it was a little more complicated than that, I think, Scott. I think you're maybe simplifying that. Because I think within that team, there were, you know, basketball is a very different sport than a lot of them because they're so team-oriented. And even though basketball is a team sport, it is built up generally of one or two major stars that can make that team, and then there's other fillers. And within that team, there was a man, you know, by the name of Russell Westbrook, that is a very, not only a, a star player, I mean, an MVP type player. He's, he's a guy that demands the ball. And the all the time. That there, was no, there was only one ball for, you know, for, that can only go around to one person. And a guy of Durant's abilities who is an MVP, uh, arguably one of the better top five players in the world when healthy. Um, that other player, that other MVP, wouldn't give him the ball. <laughs> so this, I think there was a little bit that played into that. I just, you know, if you've been on a team, here's the thing. Like, we know modern sports guys bounce around. We under, we understand that. Like, that's not a shock to anybody. I mean, I, I, I've predicted a long time ago, and I'm going to say it again. Austin Matthews is not going to finish his career as a Toronto Maple Leaf, for example. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And you know what? At some point, Austin Matthews, I'm absolutely convinced is going to go to Arizona. It may not be as soon as his five years are up right away, but at some point he's going to go there. He will. But the fact is, that's not what we're talking about. You pointed out that Ray Bork, by the time he left, had been in Boston for 21 years. Is that what it is? Something like that. It was, it was, I, I, 19, 20, 21. There comes a point when to me, if you are so synonymous with a team, you you just ride it out, and and if you don't win, you you know I'm no fan, quite honestly, of the Sedines. But I look at the Sedines and I say, you know what, I I I nod my head to what you guys did, that you stayed and you finished there. That's the only team you played on, and you tried to win it, and you came very close. You didn't. And I have great respect for the fact that they didn't say you got to trade us to a team that's going to win us a cup. So you feel the same way about Sundin then? I do feel the same way. I felt the same way about Sundin back at the time. Now he eventually, as I say, he eventually left to Vancouver. uh, And I can't honestly remember what the circumstances were of that deal. Was that a free agent deal or was he traded? Because he played, basically they tried to trade him because obviously you know how these teams are. You try before the guy gets to free agency, you want to try and cash out for him and get something for him. But he decided not to, you know, they... They well could have maybe traded him. I think at the time, the rumors were Boston, maybe Colorado was in there at the time that were looking for Sunday services, teams that were in the you know postseason teams. And he, he nixed the trade because he had a no-trade clause in his contract and said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm going down fighting with this team to try and make the playoffs. Which, and again, I don't remember... Which, again, angered as a Maple Leaf captain and one of the better Maple Leaf captains, in my opinion. And that yep. angered Maple Leaf fans. And I on I don't remember this, and so I uh, someone can correct me. You maybe can correct me. I can't remember because obviously the situation between him and Toronto when they tried to move him, and then he wouldn't go had sort of fallen apart. I can't remember. Did the Leafs offer him a, a deal in free agency? That was a, a no. They were deal? moving I, on. No, like he, yeah, they, it was over. So, like it was it was over. But he would not. He would not go. Right, but that was my point. Is that so? He left. And that was my recollection, but I, I, I still stand to be corrected. My recollection was he left to Vancouver only when Toronto did not open the door to have him back. It wasn't that 
he was trying to get out and join a winning team. He, right. he, he wasn't welcome basically back in the team where he had been. I, I think that if Toronto had not tried to trade Matt Sundin and had offered him a contract, he would have finished his career there. I, well, I guess we'll never know, right? We'll never know because because their 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 thoughts were we're re, this team is rebuilding and we we need to move on from from that particular individual. I, that much I do remember. Um, and again, he did not allow it to happen. So anyway, I like I, I'm sure I, I've not. Uh, I mean, I know nothing about Ray Bork other than what I've seen coverage and everything else. And he seems like a wonderful person, and he seems like a great guy, and he was certainly a phenomenal hockey player. Uh, Unbelievable. I just, when I, every time, and I, I saw, I came across this picture and this story about, hey, it's 19 years ago. And I thought, you know, it, it still doesn't seem right. And now he would argue, I'm positive that he would rather win a Stanley Cup with Colorado than not win a Stanley Cup with Boston. I look at it and I go, I would have had more respect, perhaps even if you had said, I'm sticking with the team. I'm, I'm staying with the, I'm dancing with the one who brung me. And if I don't win one, I'm going to be like Dan Marino. And I mean, did, did Dan Marino never played for anybody but Miami, did he? Nope. No, nope. no, there you go. And, nope. and, and, and I understand, look, Dan Marino to this day gets lumped in with guys that aren't the greatest of all time only because he didn't win a Super Bowl. If Dan Marino had jumped in and joined the team that was the best team in the league that last year and, and even gone in as a backup, would we suddenly, and, and he got to play a little bit, would, would, would we feel better about Dan Marino? I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't, you know, because, I mean, I, again, I mean, everyone has their different lists, um, but in my opinion, you're talking about a top five quarterback of all time. I agree. Um, I agree. Even no, without a championship. Even without, even a, without championship, a championship. You know, and it's crazy for him because in his first year as a starter, he went to the Super Bowl. Either his first or his second. I believe his second, actually. And the the thought was at the time, this guy's going to have – so many more opportunities, right, of going to the Super Bowl. But a team from down the road <laughs> blocked him from going to the Super Bowl on several occasions, at least four in a row, right? You know, there are some very, very good Miami Dolphin teams, but those Bills teams from the early 90s were always a little bit better when it came to meeting in the playoffs. Yeah, and now when you talk about greatest quarterbacks of all time, does Dan Dan Marino does wear the fact he never won a Super Bowl? But is anybody going to make an argument that Dan Marino was not a good as good a quarterback as Eli Manning, who has two? No, Much I don't think so. You'd be you'd be you'd have a concussion if you did. Yeah, you, you, I agree with you. Not even close, right? In fact, it's, I would I would argue to many that no one through in terms. Now you look at Tom Brady, right? And and he is a great winner. He, uh, you can't. He's won six Super Bowls, right? So he's he's considered the goat, uh, because he has six Super Bowls. But in terms of mechanics, stepping back in the pocket, feeling pressure, throwing balls on any angle, inside out, seam patterns, over the top, down the sidelines, left right. No, I would say Dan Marino does it as, if not as good as anyone, maybe the best in terms of pure, the actual position of a quarterback and what's required to, to, do, to operate as a quarterback, I don't know if there's anyone better. 
And and you know you mentioned Tom Brady. We got to wrap up. It's a little bit. It's a little bit different. I mean, he's now playing for Tampa Bay. If they have a season, and people say, "Well, he left." Yeah, I I, I wish Tom Brady. If there could be nothing worked out with New England, I wish he would have just retired and stayed as a Patriot. But the slight difference is, Tom Brady is not going to Tampa Bay because he has to win his first championship. He wants to enhance his legacy. Sure. Uh, I still, you know, at a certain point, to me. It looks it's it's and I, I know you shouldn't use this guy's name, but it's OJ Simpson playing for San Francisco, or it's Joe Thai or uh, Joe Montana playing for uh, Kansas City, or this like at some point, just mm, it just Joe, it, it, Joe Namath playing with the LA Rams. There you go. There you what? go. I mean, there's just well Dexter Manley playing with the Ottawa Red Blacks or <laughs> R- Ottawa Renegades. <laughs> if you want to get down right down the path oh, of stupidity, who are those owners again? The, 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 the Gleibermans, uh, the Gleibermans, yes, oh. the Gleibermans, because Horn Chen had sold. Oh, good gosh! <laughs> oh, Some, you know, yeah, someday we'll do a history a, of Ottawa's football. You know, that's is that the same? Fra- I mean, I believe it's the same franchise that drafted a dead person. Uh yeah, yeah, but didn't Ottawa Senators also do that? When <laughs> when uh, Mel Bridgman, or no, his computer battery broke before the first ever Ottawa Senators expansion draft, and he had to go by what he could remember. You know, not, not to make fun of our friends up in the nation's capital, but boy, sure we can. Their sure owner, we can. Their, their ownership is, has been as shoddy, and we're finding out some things about Eugene Melnick that uh, that are very unappealing. So we can make fun of anything to do with the Ottawa Senators, and we can mock them because that team was supposed to be in Hamilton until they didn't play by any kind of fair rules, and the team ended up in Ottawa. So I hope nothing. But hardship and heartbreak for everybody involved in that franchise. I hope they get to 25 Stanley Cup finals and lose everyone in overtime of Game 7 on controversial goals that they will never be able to get over. Non-stop. Non-stop. Well, yeah, they've had a few. But I I hope that like every horrible thing, not health-wise, I don't want bad things to happen to their health, just really painful, horrible, life-altering sports disappointments. That's what I'm hoping for until they move the team back to Hamilton where it should have been in the first place. You are one angry individual. (laughs) We'll talk about that down the road. Bubba O'Neill, always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, bud. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.